Oh, look around. Nice to see you all. Um, my name is, for those I haven't met, my name is Sarah. Um, my Dharma name is Dojin, and I use the pronoun she and her. And, I, and I'm not a fan of the gender binary. <laughs> I just like being female. Um, just to say. Um, I'm, I'm one of the teachers and priests at Brooklyn Zen Center. Um, actually, I, I just wanted to briefly mention a meditation posture possibility. Um, just because sitting this morning, there are a few folks I wondered um, if there was some discomfort. Um, one of the, so Zen maybe has a reputation of being a little harsh, maybe even <laughs> a little tight, a little like, uh, you know. Um, and the, but the Buddha's original admonition was that to, to do meditation, we actually have to be comfortable enough. And so one of the things I want to say or encourage everyone in the Sangha is do what you need to do to be physically comfortable when you're doing meditation. Um, like take the time to do that. And if, and if in the middle of the period you need to shift a little, um, please do that. Like see that as a way to, um, in this life, save the body, you know, care for the body. Um, and another possibility to offer that one that's been really helpful to me is, um, it, I think it applies also if you're sitting in a chair, but it's more also, if you're sitting on a cushion and cross-legged, is get your hips above your knees. Get high enough that your weight is on your sit bones and that your hips are higher than your knees. So I just want to offer that possibility. And then please talk to people if you're, if, if you're uncomfortable. Um, and again, that's not, um, you know, it's a, it's a point of practice. Care for the body. Notice what's happening. And... Um, and be comfortable enough that there can be ease in meditation. You know, if you're, it shouldn't be painful. <clears throat> There's plenty of pain <laughs> that the heart and mind will offer up. Um, the last time I gave a talk was during Rohatsu Sashin at the beginning of December. So <clears throat> sometimes it happens for me that like a theme starts generating of like what I want to offer when I get the, the the privilege of giving a Dharma talk next. Um, and, and where my heart is at is I want to talk, but maybe like over the next year. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get to get today, but I want to talk about freedom. Like, like really, what do we mean by freedom? And what's our relationship to it as human beings and as, and as bodhisattva practitioners? Zen, this school of Zen, Soto Zen, is a bodhisattva school of Buddhism. So um, it's centered around the vow to care for the suffering of all beings. And, and in that, like what's our relationship to freedom? Our actual like us as like complicated, not perfect human beings, um, what is our relationship to freedom and, and how, how do we feel it? You know, can we know it actually as a physical embodied experience? Can we start to, to cultivate it, become familiar with it? And it's, I mean, not it actually, different, different moments of freedom, you know, endless moments of freedom and liberation. And hopefully I can loop back a, a little bit to that by the end of the talk. 
Um, where I wanted to start today was what's happened for, for my, me and my heart, and I know for many others over the past week, as there's been another round of, of massacres of human life in the United States, um, which, you know, I, I don't assume everyone here lives all the time in the United States, but I know many of us here do, and it's become this, you know, experience of hearing on the news about, or, or you know, or for some people, the direct experience of um, people in the community being, being uh, slaughtered by gun violence. I mean, I don't want to say mass shooting because I feel like that word itself has become drained of its potency. You know, like this is, these are like, and, and I don't mean to be dramatic either. And, and yet I think it's appropriate. Actually, I think a massacre is the appropriate word. Many human beings, lives are lost. Many people are injured physically. And then beyond that, many people are injured psychologically in, in, in massively rippling traumatic impacts. And for those of us who live in the United States, we know like this is happening at a rate that is almost undigestible. Um, and I'll say for myself, it's, and it's happening in a context where um, I have to be really diligent to not um, feel like there's nothing I can do. And the, and the compounding of trauma that that is, the feeling of helplessness is. And, um, <clears throat> so to name specifically, a, a week ago today, there was a, uh, many people lost their lives in Monterey Park in California. Uh, 12, 12 people have since died and nine people were physically injured. And then again, like hundreds, you know, actually, who know, millions, right? Because, and especially I've been hearing from people in my lives who are dear to me, who identify as Asian American, that it, it's compounding the violence that has escalated around targeting Asian Americans. And then there's been some discussion, like, was this racially motivated? And I, and I think it, I, maybe there's some relevance to that, but I, in some ways it doesn't matter. It's another compounding. Um, and, then, and then days later, a second massacre where five of the seven people who died are Asian identif identified as, I think actually were Chinese. Um, when I went to look at I was like, well, there's a part of me that hears these things, and I'm like, I, like, I literally and mentally in my heart, like, I just can't, you know, I just can't. Um, but I have developed a practice for myself of like, okay, maybe I can't take that in right now, and I will try to come back around um, to at least have moments of honoring the individual human beings um, as much as I can. Um, but I look to see well, when did these actually happen? And there's now there's many inventories of, of mass shootings in the United States. There's dozens since the beginning of this calendar year, dozens. Between Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay, which happened two days later, there were, there were similar events in Shreveport and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and in Robinsonville, Mississippi. And in the days since, which so Half Moon Bay was um, only a few days ago, there have been mass shootings in Chicago, Oakland, 
Red Springs, North Carolina, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Newark, New Jersey. None of which even made the news, or I'm sure they did locally. <clears throat> so I was sitting, I've been sitting with that this week and um, wanting to offer and to, to confess, some part of me wants to offer something helpful as a priest, you know. Um, but I realized that um, you know, I don't I don't know how much there is helpful to offer. But I do think that one thing that I can do in my position as a priest is to ask us to surface together just our awareness and our consciousness of it. Um, my experience is that when we, that we can metabolize pain better when we're with one another than we can when we feel ourselves to be individual or separate. And so to me, Sangha is a place where like, can, can we surface? Can we honor? You know, can we like right now, can we honor? the many, many people impacted. And maybe some of us have close connections, you know, and honor that. Can we honor whatever it is that, are, that did arise and, and is arising in our, in our psychophysical beings in response to this? Often when I, when I hear news like this, I, I feel this like, um, I can see myself going two ways. Some of me wants to like, like fall over and sob and then it's like, well, that's too much, Sarah, you know, and you don't know these people, or there's a voice like that, you know, minimizing. Um, and then another part of me wants to be numb. And I, and there, and, and as I thought about this this week, I at one point had an iteration of the talk where I wanted to say, like, let's not be numb. <laughs> let's, let's never assimilate to this being normal as a Sangha, like, can we all pledge to do that? But actually, I don't want to say that because I realize I settled myself down a little. And, and I was appreciating the resilience and adaptability of us, of numbness, the place that it plays in um, allowing us to, to move forward in our lives when, when there's undigestible amounts of tragedy that we have to somehow metabolize. So, but what I, but I, what I do feel like we can do is, um, is just surface it, you know, just be present. And I also feel like we can lean into practice, depend on, depend on the support of Bodhisattva practice to, to give us the um, capacity to make room at some point to actually sit and be quiet and feel the fullness of whatever it is that we feel, including numbness, um, including cynicism, including just feeling despair. And then I was also thinking about how, you know, I'm like, what, what is this doing to us collectively? And wondering about the psychology involved for us collectively it's like social in terms of social psychology like what's happening where we where these are are more and more of just like a blip on the radar of our awareness because they happen so often and it's so overwhelming and thinking how you know what does it do to a human psyche when 
lethal violence is threatened kind of anywhere. Like I was noticing for myself that I'm not surprised, I wouldn't be surprised and I'm not surprised that this kind of violence shows up anywhere, right? Like grocery stores, elementary schools, you know, the tar target, <laughs> dance halls, familial celebration, like anywhere. And so like, what is it doing to us collectively that we have to make sense of that being a possibility? And then as I was looking into that, I could see the bias of my, particularly my racial location. Um, so I can name that as a white person, I have, I've lived a chunk of my life where random lethal violence did not feel imminent anywhere. And then I, and then I woke up to the reality that for particular communities and racial identities in the United States, random lethal violence has been a part of the story for as long as there's been something called the United States yeah. and before that even. Yeah, and I could see the, the, the bias of um, feeling like this was new because of my racial location. Does that make sense? And, and this word that was coming to my mind was, um, or one of the things that's been coming to my mind and my heart was this, an idea of distillation societally. Like what things get distilled over time and over generations. And the, um, yeah, the distillation of violence in the United States, which is there, again, from before it, this country was formed as this entity that it is now and all throughout. Yeah. And the way that these, these moments of, um, of terrorizing and slaughtering human life, um, how they are connected to all the violence that's come before. Um, and again, like for me, as someone who spent most of my life in the United States, how they are connected to pieces of, that I've been socialized in that I've been conditioned by. And um, and again, like I, there's not a solution. There's just the intention to be present with the widest spectrum I can tolerate to take in around it and um, and take care. And, and also a commitment to it that I feel, of, and, and I want to recommend as bodhisattva practitioners, a commitment to like finding the supports we need. And those will vary depending on our different uh, racial locations for sure. And then different social identities, our different histories, our different um, traumatic impacts in our lives, our, our different grief histories, but, but really committing, like finding the support we need to try to metabolize and try to digest and try to at least be with one another consciously um, and not and not and not make numbness the main thing even while it's sometimes an important thing and 
and and not dismiss how our own loss histories show up every time we hear about the death of another human being. You know, I realize like probably everyone in this room has lost a beloved person on some level, you know. And um, that we don't interrupt a kind of natural thing that happens when we hear about the death of another person that our own loss histories arrive in that moment and inform it because that's actually that's where our our lived experience of compassion comes from i think i also earlier this week i read uh I think it was in the New York Times, an opinion article by uh, Michelle Goh's father, Justin Goh. So Michelle Goh was a, a, also an Asian American identified person who was pushed in front of the subway a year ago, just this month, um, and died. And just hearing, just the, the, yeah, hearing from her father. And he, he mentions in there that um, it's not the first child he lost, that he and his wife, their younger daughter, died uh, by crib death many years ago. So this is the second child they've lost. And just, and like letting in, not skipping over the fullness of the impact of that. And, and also, and then, but, but caring for the impacts, you know, caring for the impacts. For myself, I can see there's a lot of, I have a lot of socialization around minimizing. Um, and this I also see in my racial identity, my racial location. In, in the white cultures I've grown up in, there's a lot of minimizing. That has nothing to do with you. It's not about you. That's not your pain. And, um, and I feel really supported in practice to turn the tide away from that momentum of that conditioning and understand I am in relationship to all beings. You know, there isn't suffering that, um, that I don't feel in relationship to. And at the same time, be clear about my, my location and the protections that, that in this society come with that. And at the same, and then at the same time, <laughs> let the fullness of this, of the sorrow and the, and the rage and the pain. In the mix of all these things, I was also um, um, Jeffrey Cantu, who many of you know, who's also a priest at Brooklyn Zen Center, um, did this wonderful thing where he, um, he somehow, I don't know exactly how he had the power to do this <laughs> but he I guess he got to propose a, a just a justice and dharma dialogue at Union Theological Seminary and he reached out to me to see if I would do one of those dialogues in conversation with Dr. Paula Arai who's an amazing Buddhist scholar who I deeply admire um, around grief and its relationship to social justice and so that was already actually on my mind for a couple of weeks before this week. And, and I, there's just something that started to percolate in my being around um, how so much of the violence from these big, obvious, you know, gross level ones to even these, to even tiny 
um, momentary interpersonal moments of violence actually come out of undigested pain. You know, it's so much of, of like harm that happens in the world is because people haven't been supported to digest the pain that they've inherited or have experienced or carry. And, um, and the role of grieving for us as human beings as a way to care for the world. Does this make sense? I can't tell if I've made this leap so many times in my mind that I, but I just, I was like, oh, right, right. That if we can really grieve, if we can really bring forward and be supported to metabolize and integrate, not, not to skip over and not to complete or not to dismiss, but, but to metabolize grief, then um, I think it does, it, it, it decreases our potential to cause harm, I think, <laughs> or at least it decreases the potential to cause harm out of undigested pain. And that, and that we really, again, like as bodhisattva practitioners, take seriously caring for our pain and take seriously how we also figure out how to do that collectively so that we don't continue to perpetuate harm. Um, also this week, I think Charlie brought across my field of awareness um, quotes by Ellie Wiesel about how do we deal with the barrage of tragedies we're asked to try to digest. And, and, and the person that was commenting on this said, um, Whenever we quiet the voices of so-called civilization, the voices of selfing and hard-edged individualism, that sense of interconnectedness of life and lives becomes audible. And I'm like, Buddhism. <laughs> and yet we are habitually deafened to it by a kind of desensitization. Much of it, Wiesel observes, is a form of paralysis that comes from the sheer mismatch between the scale of the problems the world hurls at us and our individual locus of agency. A particular pathology of the information age, further exploited by the news media and their crisis mongering. And you know, I, I, this is an this is one I've heard of before, and I and I think it's good to remember and. Again, like, I don't know if there's, I don't think there's an answer. I don't think there's a right, there's a solution here. But just to consider um, the scale of what, 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 we, what we were made to be able to take in. And that, we, and that our technology and our levels of communication may have far outrun our, what we were designed to be able to respond to. So on the one hand, so like on this hand, I think there's something really important for us to remember about that as human beings. Like the scale of what I'm being asked to attend to is beyond what I can actually deal with. And that historically or you know, evolutionarily, I would only know about the tragedies like in my, in my sphere of influence. And, and it's hard to hear about stuff that is like way beyond what I could even touch you know, on this hand. 
I think it's important to remember. And then on the other hand, I think of this quote from Dogen Zenji, who's the founder of Soto Zen, the whole earth is the true human body. And the way that our Dharma practice asks us to, to attune to being connected with all things. He said that in like the 1300s, <laughs> there was no internet. And there, you know, and, and it, I don't know how information traveled. And the, and the way that there's also a truth to that. It doesn't really matter if it's far away. If, you, if, if we, we he can hear about something and it can impact us absolutely and completely as if it was around the corner. And how do we, and how do we care for all of that? Um, <laughs> my son looked over my shoulder last night and was like, does your note say the onion of responsibility? <laughs> I was like, yeah, my notes say the onion of responsibility. <laughs> the bodhisattva's onion of responsibility. Um, but I, but I really, onion's not quite it, you know, but I, I think you get what I mean, like, you know, layers, a, a circular entity with layers that go out and a core, you know, I was like, jawbreaker of responsibility, <laughs> everlasting gobstopper of responsibility. And I was like, well, that's pretty good because it goes on forever. <laughs> but what I wanted to, but, I, but that image, you know, like the earth herself, layers and, um, but our and but of ourselves, the way that we are that you know, we are we are these layers of responsibility, and our practice asks us to be in layers of responsibility. But there's a but I want this to conjure this image of there's a core, and then that core is always present no matter how far out our sense of responsibility or our actions become, and so. And that core being how we relate to ourselves. You know, that, that actually the amount of compassion and wisdom and, and empathy and kindness we offer to ourselves is always present and always impacting. It's always the ground we're standing on when we're interacting with even just one other person, when we're, at, when we're interacting in our communities when we're interacting and trying to influence in our societies, when we're looking at the, even the problems of our whole planet. And it's always there. So there really is, I really like want to champion caring for this because it's always the ground, because it always shapes the energetic field we bring to everything else. And in that sense, Here's some stuff I think we can do. <laughs> I can't help it. I want to be helpful. Um, so I want to give you something tangible. <laughs> um, the first is we can presence what really happens for us. Don't skip over our pain. I had this beautiful experience this week among, as you can tell, like a million others. I hurt someone. I'm just going to let that happen because <laughs> I want to be like, it was unintentional. It was unintentional. The person knew it was unintentional, but I hurt them. 
uh, with an action that I did with words I said, and, and it was the context wow. too. And then I'm smiling because I'm like, and then they gave me this gift of telling me that this happened. It was so awesome. They reached out and they said, I know you didn't mean to harm me, but I'm going to let you know about some harm that happened. And really, and I, and I feel like, again, like I feel deeply supported in practice to, instead of feeling defensive, I was like, this is so great. <laughs> I'm so grateful. You know, I also know there's a certain, there, there's a, you can only do that with people you trust to a certain extent. And I feel grateful to be in a trusting relationship to me. And they said, no, I just, I want to let you know. I wouldn't have known. And that harm would have been there between us and I wouldn't have known it. And then it might have, it, it likely would distill or it could, and then it, or it was a nugget that was there that could have compounded. But instead they gave me the gift of the opportunity to say, I am so sorry. I didn't, you know, actually, I'm sorry. I had to really be like, and not like, and I didn't intend that. doesn't matter. doesn't matter that I didn't intend it. Simply, I am sorry that I caused you harm. And now that field is liberated from that nugget that may have been dismissed as too small to bring forward. Is that, yeah, so it's like, how do we care for the field of the seeds that are between it? between us and between one another and in community. We have this, we have this chance to heal it. Another thing that happened to me this week was I read a, a writing by my friend who's a brilliant teacher and a, a Vedic astrologer. Her name is Marga Lauba. And she was talking about, uh, she was writing about Jane Goodall and a, and a sense of hope. And she's, and she's, I think, I think what she was saying is that Jane Goodall had said that um, hope was a survival trait. And it was coming on the heels of uh, uh, Charlie's talk last week about hope and not a naive hope, but hope of, hope of a vital engagement, you know, hope of, hope of being willing to show up over and over again. Um, and she said, if hope is a survival trait, if that's true, then everything that's here with us now has likely been able to hold on to hope, everything, the good and the bad. And letting this sink in leads me to a new awareness. What if it's not about me holding on to my vision of the way things should be, but more about me being differently, holding myself in a new context of interrelatedness, and even more to the point, holding our collective future in an active field of hope. And that, and that rang in my heart as this thing that, that, that I feel like I'm gonna have to take time to express of the feeling of freedom, which I think comes from when we're, comes when we're standing on the ground of interrelatedness and not as an idea, but as an embodied experience. When I really understand, when I'm really standing in that place of locating myself in a field of interrelatedness, every once in a while, there's like the actual sensation of like unhooking myself from cultural conditioning that has had me bound. So being differently, 
this person reaching out to me to say that I had caused them harm for me is a good example of being differently. They have different socialization than I have, but I'm pretty sure we both share a socialization that minimizes, you know, that says like, oh, it's not worth mentioning, suck it up, you know, and, and instead they, they unhooked from that conditioning and said, I'm pretty sure you'd want to know this. And then we got to be in a field of liberation together. And that those things, those moments, there's, there, there aren't any ones that are too small. I think that's what I want to say. There aren't any. That actually the whole world is made up of tiny, tiny moments. Tiny moments of thought, tiny moments of human interaction that create these fields that we live in. Um, another, another thing I think we can do, and, and we spent a fair amount of time this fall talking about it, but it was, it was reignited for me yesterday, is it, it actually several times it was reignited for me yesterday, is allowing joy in our lives as a way to care for that core, that core sphere. That there's a way that things are so awful that we could feel like joy is inappropriate, you know, or like, how could I, how could I go roller skating right now when the world's on fire? You know? But I, I, I want to experiment with us turning it around and being like, well, because the world's on fire, I'm going to 20 minutes, I'm going to go roller skating <laughs> and feel that joy. One of the, I hope it's okay to mention Tova. I was inspired by your, uh, Tova is a, a Dharma sibling from San Francisco Zen Center who's visiting. And we were, ha we had lunch yesterday and we were mentioned, I was mentioning Dr. Arai, Paula Arai, and Tova said, oh yes, I love, I love Dr. Arai and she's a friend and we, we do duets together. <laughs> so Tova is a cellist and Dr. Arai is a violin player and they play duets together and that they did this. It sounds like you did this once and then realized that it was so nourishing that then made a practice of this. And it really was turning in me yesterday because there, and there were a couple more examples of this from other people also having joy in the midst of pain where I, I realized like, oh, both Tova and, and Paula are people I know who are completely devoted to responding to the suffering in the world. And they're also like mature beings who know well enough to be like, oh, this brings joy. And so it has a, it, it has a role to play in my bodhisattva commitment <laughs> in the world. And that's really inspiring. And, and for me, something to really take to heart. It's not a, it's, we're, not, um, we're not leaving our commitment. We're actually engaging our commitment. We're leaving our commitment when we're like, all I'm going to do is joy all the time. I'm checking out. <laughs> that's not a bodhisattva engagement. But I'm going to be here, the pain in my heart, and I'm going to make music with another person to also nourish my heart. And then, and then the last was the last thing I want to lift up is noticing and um, and like um, growing in our heart these moments of freedom. They aren't all pleasant. I just want to say that. Often, if I'm if I'm doing something that's counter to my conditioning, it's uncomfortable and awkward, and I feel kind of nauseous. <laughs> um, 
And though, and I feel like the, there's certain kinds of like queasiness that I'm like, oh, I might be challenging a thing that I that has that has been constraining me. And to start to know for yourself in your own body what these different different kinds there are different kinds. Some some moments of freedom are have levity in them, have you know, feel actually positive and good. But to look for these different moments of freedom and to um, amplify them and to let them saturate your being for a few minutes before moving on to the next thing. Um, the last thing I want to mention is just a couple. I've mentioned uh, one of these uh, things, one of these podcasts before. There's a, there's a podcast, it's called Soul Affirmations, and Soul is S-O-L. And I know I've mentioned it at BZC. Because a couple of people have said, oh, I checked that out and I'm, thank you. Um, it's a podcast uh, made by this uh, couple, Kariga and Felicia Bailey, who their first child died in labor. And their response to that was to create a podcast about their experience and about grieving. They still do it now. They've since had another child who's living, their second daughter. And so, and, but they continue. Um, and I know I mentioned it before, and it's in the same spirit of like, to me, there's something culturally liberating about people in the world now being supported that when they have a tragic loss, like a, like a child dying in labor, which happens more than many people think. <laughs> and it's a big loss. It's a big confusing loss. People, this is one of these losses that I've experienced in the world we have an infant daughter. She lived for a day who died. But similarly, I've experienced people's confusion. They're like, well, was it your child? And well, maybe it's better that you never knew them. I mean, there's just all this confusion about how to respond to that. But I, um, it's your child. Your child died. You continue to be their parent. And it's just, to me, gloriously liberating <laughs> that they're like, and we're going to share our experience. So I recommend checking them out. And then another um, person that's come across my field about like 20 times in the past six months um, is Nick Cave, the artist. I have to confess, because I have my own wounding, particularly I have wounding around white men. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, Nick Cave. Um, I'm super touched by this human being and what they're putting into the world right now. And part of what, so Nick Cave is a, I don't know if everybody knows Nick Cave. So it's a songwriter and artist. And I don't know, I think of him from the eighties, actually. He's a little old, he's maybe 10 years older than me. So in his sixties, he has had the very challenging human experience of uh, having, he had a 15 year old son die in an accident falling off a cliff. And then, um, and then he started, he, he, similarly, he started like kind of writing and sharing his experience. And then he, there was a book that he wrote with another person, um, Sean O'Hagan, last year about his life and experience and, and sort of the wisdom that has come for him as he's been supported to digest his grief and metabolize it. And, um, and then in the afterward of that book, there's the acknowledgement that his, another of his sons has died. Um, and I think it, uh, it, this was a 31-year-old child who died, I think, by suicide. And, and uh, he puts this out every month, I think. 
and I want to lift these folks up because I feel like um yeah there's the liberating lived example of when we can get the support we need to metabolize grief that um not only are we less likely to cause harm, but we might actually even be brought to places of wisdom that weren't previously available. That the way that the world looks after um, tragic loss um, is a little more vivid and possibly more true than it looked before. So I wanna share these words of Nick Cave that are extremely moving to me. Um, the everyday human gesture is always a heartbeat away from the miraculous. That ultimately we make things happen through our actions way beyond our understanding or intention that our seemingly small, ordinary human acts have untold consequences. That what we do in this world means something. That we are not nothing. And that our most quotidian human actions by their nature burst the seams of our intent and spill meaningfully and radically through time and space, changing everything. Our deeds, no matter how insignificant they may feel, are replete with meaning and vast and a vast consequence. And they constantly impact upon the unfolding story of the world, whether we know it or not. So, so that's what I feel like I'd like to encourage us around to really understand that our actions are part of what we're sowing into the world to be distilled into our cultural reality. And that we, we can lean into one another in Sangha for the support to do something different than minimizing, than skipping over, than not feeling, um, and that that matters. Thank you. Okay, I think that's all we have time for, at least in this form. And if there are things that are stirred for you that um, linger with you or you notice in days after, um, please know that you can reach out if there's, especially if there's something that I said that caused harm <laughs> or just stirred something that didn't sit well, um, please let me know. Thank you. May our intention equally Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.